And so we begin with Ephesians 4 this week, verses 1 through 16. And I've titled this message, We Are Not Spectators. So let me ask you a simple question. What does a spectator do? Watch. A spectator watches something. They watch, they look, they observe. Uh, Here in America, you can even just think of sports. We have a spectator culture, spectator traditions that when you go to a game, there's the pregame and the postgame show and the halftime report and you've got the commercial breaks and the cheerleaders and the fireworks and all kinds of things that go on for the purpose of a spectator to watch and enjoy the show. We go to movies, we go listen to music groups, we go to be entertained and to spectate. But would it be weird for those of you who are following the March Madness and tomorrow's game with Texas Tech and Virginia, if the players came out on the court, warmed up, had their jerseys on everything, and then they go take seats in the stands for the game? Be kind of crazy, right? Be a little weird, like what is going on here? But think about this. What if believers in the church whom Jesus Christ bled and died for and saved, that those believers sat in the bleachers of the church and spectated? I would point to you in Scripture that Paul argues that we are not to be spectators, but to be active participants in the body of Christ And so we have a problem in churches, specifically in America today, that many churches in America are filled more with spectators than with participants. Uh, Church has become a place where people go to church on Sundays when it is convenient. That church has become a place where many sit and spectate, uh, maybe engage in some small talk around a donut, but only with people that we know Church has become a place for many that uh, we mutter a few lines in a song so that we don't think that people that we're not singing, or we put something in the offering so it doesn't look like we're a part of what's going on. And sadly, and probably these numbers would be different, but um, many pastors in America report that 20% of the body of Christ in the local gathering are active participants in ministering to one another while 80% spectate. So there's a great problem that we need to see is addressed in Scripture by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. And we have to ask the question, is being a spectator in the bleachers watching church really what God has intended for his people, the body of Christ? We don't go to church, we are the church. And that's the big idea this morning. We don't go to church. We do not go to church, we are The church, and I hope that is ingrained in your mind, that we don't go to church, but we are the church. Would you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 
Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, verse 14, we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you and we ask that you would work on our hearts. Would you work in us in such a way that there is great unity in Christ in this room, in the believers who gather in this place every week? Father, that we would see you cause us to grow in spiritual maturity, that we would be people who are loving and serving one another, and that the world outside living in darkness, would see the light of Christ in us. Father, would you give us great understanding of your word this morning? Holy Spirit, we ask that you would show us how to apply this and live this out in our lives and in the body of Christ. And we ask a blessing on the reading and the preaching of the word in Jesus' name. Amen. So since the second half of the book of Ephesians is all about applying the truths of God, we see right here in verse 1 that he calls the church to do something. In verse 1, the church is called to walk. And he uses this term walk, and he repeats it a few times in the next couple chapters. He speaks about walking in holiness, walking in love, walking in light, and walking in wisdom. And it says here in verse 1, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, to walk, what do you have to do? Someone's kind of mumbled. What do you have to do? To walk, you do what? You take a step at a time. Now, he speaks of walking in these things a number of times. In other places, Paul talks about running the race. Well, we run the race that Christ has set before us, but we do that as we walk a step at a time, being matured in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. But he says that he urges us, or he urges the Christians, he begs them or implores them to conduct your life. That's what it means when you're walking, to take one step at a time, not running, but to do this in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And it's no surprise that now that he calls the believers to do something, because if you go back to Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 8 through 9, he says how we're saved by the grace of God through faith alone. But then in verse 10, it says not by works, but in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, 
If you remember, if you were here, I had a piece of pottery and I had a, a piece of artwork, a painting here to talk about how God has created us and how God has uh, made us distinct and unique. And it says here, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10. You see, we are not saved uh, by the work of Christ at the cross just so that we would sit in the bleachers and just sit and take in and sit and take in and sit and take in. We are called to be active participants in the body of Christ. And as we'll see today, he gives every believer a gift. And every believer is to use that gift for the uh, unity of the, of the body of Christ and for maturing the body of Christ I want you to look at verse 2, though, and there's four characteristics, though, that is to be a part of your life if you're a believer. If you're a Christian, these four characteristics, which you can see some of these listed in Galatians 5 as part of the fruit of the Spirit. You can read in, I believe, 2 Peter chapter 1, where it says, add to your faith, and it lists some of these things. Here's four things that should mark your life and my life if we say we're Christians. It says to walk in this way with all humility. So we're to walk like who? Jesus Christ, in which we see in Philippians chapter 2, the great humility of Christ, that Jesus Christ came to earth, he became man, being fully God, fully man, and he humbled himself and died on a cross in our place for our sins. We are to live our life as that being a characteristic of our life, as being humble people, when Jesus Christ was arrested on that night, they came in and they had in the upper room a meal together. But before the meal started, what did Jesus do? He washed their feet. You might think, well, that's kind of weird today. Or I remember going to a church. We had a feet washing thing. I remember as a kid, we were attending church. And I think every year they had this foot washing thing. And the guys went downstairs in the basement. The women were upstairs. I just thought as a kid, I'm like, this is weird. What are we taking our shoes and socks off for? They're washing our feet. But then you learn and, and understand that Jesus washed their feet, and it was this picture of humility because their feet were dirty and grimy because they had sandals and they're walking in the dirt. And so you would, as a servant, clean their feet when they came into your home. And Peter's like, no, no, Jesus, don't do that. And he said, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. He said, well, give me a bath, Jesus. He said, no, you don't need that. But think of Jesus washing feet as an example, to think of yourself, how am I humbling myself to serve other people? Read Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8 this week as an example of that. This is also a gentleness, to walk with gentleness or meekness, this opposite of being rough. I can think of a leader years ago at a church that I was at, and he was serving on the board, and then he went off the board. But uh, he, he was a guy who he'd get up, and he'd, he'd try to implore people to come to certain things, and he was just rough with his words, and he'd yell at people. And, he, I mean, he was kind of scary to be around. And even he's talking, he's like, whoa, I don't want to be around this guy. And one day I was like, man, there's some people that don't even want to go to that men's thing because of how you're speaking there. And I said, hey, now you were on the board, right? Yes. And for the board, you, we have these qualifications in First Timothy chapter 3, right? Yes. And I'm like, okay, so you're off the board now. Uh, are you disqualified? He goes, what do you mean? He said, no, I just went off on the terms. And I said, so you're still qualified as an elder according to Scripture? Yes. What's this one say here? To be gentle. Well, you don't understand. This is just my culture and what I come from, what city I grew up in. No, there's no excuse. You have to be someone who's gentle at the leadership level and at uh, the level of every person in the body of Christ. 
says to be with, to walk in a manner worthy of calling with patience. How many of you here this morning need some more patience? Raise my hand. I was praying for that yesterday. God, give me more patience. It means a, a staying of God's wrath or to be long-suffering. And I see that and the next one together where it says bearing with one another in love. Uh, this picture of enduring with another person. And he says to do it with agape love, the same love that Jesus has for us. And we're seeking that person's uh, highest good. But let me ask you this. Who does he say there in verse 2 that we're bearing with? What's it say in verse 2? Bearing with one another. Oh, I'll give you the answer. <laughs> bearing with one another. Who's the one another that he's writing to? Who's the one another he's writing to? Believers. Yes, to the church in Ephesus, but for us today. So he's saying to bear with the, one another as believers? I mean, that sounds weird. We should all just get along, right? As Christians? You ever run across that Christian? You're like, oh, not him, not her. They sat in my row. And God convicted this in my heart years ago. I remember being at a part of a, at a church, and every week we had a prayer group time. And I was like, Lord, please don't let him get up early. Lord, I don't want him to show up because he asked me the weirdest questions. Pastor, what do you think about this? Why don't we do this? Why is this advertising? And I'm like, Lord, this guy is so annoying. And I seriously would avoid the guy. And I'm a pastor. And one day, he didn't show up to prayer. I was like, yes. I'm at peace today. And before the service, he comes walking down the aisle. And I'm like, Lord, he's going to tell me something I don't want to hear. And he came up. And he said, Pastor, I've been praying for you this week. I have, and he gave me a bunch of words and encouragement. And I was just like, oh, Lord, forgive me. And it changed how I looked at him. Because I wasn't being patient and I wasn't bearing with him in love. And so we must ask ourselves, we see his list. Have I acted in pride towards other people? Is there a roughness in me that I'm not gentle towards other uh, people? Am I impatient? Am I not willing to bear with other people in the church uh, because of this or that or whatever? And some of us need to ask the question, have I wronged another believer and caused some disunity between me and them and the body of Christ? And do I need to go and ask them for forgiveness and make peace? Or if you have come from another church and you left because you could not bear with another person in love, you are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit among the body of Christ. And it says in verse 3 that exactly, eager to maintain, to making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That Are you zealous for the unity in the body of Christ? Some of us may be zealous for a certain ministry that benefits us or zealous for, hey, the preaching of the Word or zealous for worship or whatever, but are you zealous for keeping the unity in the body of Christ in how we live and act with one another? Because Ephesians 1 Chapter 1, verse 10, we saw that God's purpose in the body of Christ is to unite all things to himself. 
So that's what we're called to do, and it's a holy calling, it's a worthy calling, and we should have those characteristics. And then if you see, beginning in verse 4, he lists seven elements that describe what that unity comes from. And it's seven times he uses the term one, and uh, what does the term one mean in the original language, anyone? It means one. So it's important when it says one body. That's why I point that out, because when you see it says there is one body, that means that, again, with Scripture, Jesus Christ is the head, and all of the Christians are part of the body. There's only one church that is Jesus Christ is the head, and that church is universal in the sense that there are believers all around the world in every corner of this earth who have faith in Christ. But there are also those who do not have faith in Jesus Christ alone and they believe other things. But they say the name of Christ, but they're not a part of the body of Christ because they do not have faith in Christ alone. But he says there's one body. We see that in chapter 1 and and there's one spirit. The Holy Spirit in chapter 2, verses 18 and verse 22, we see the working of the Holy Spirit in our life. When we come to a point of salvation, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes that we would see the gospel. And we believe and place our faith in Jesus Christ. And it says that the Holy Spirit seals our hearts and Jesus Christ keeps his people. But he says there's unity because of the one body, the one spirit. He says there's one hope. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, it says our hope is the inheritance that we have before us, Jesus Christ. And it says one Lord. Who is our Lord? Who is it? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Lord. And in chapter 1, it says that he's the one that redeems us. He's the one that saves us. And in chapter 1, it also says that he is the head of the church and so again, as we're looking at these ones, there are, this is where we find our unity as the body of Christ. And then it says one faith. This is so important. You must get this. There is one faith that all true Christians believe, and that is salvation by faith alone in Jesus Christ. You can do no works to be saved. There is no hoops to jump through. Jesus has done it all. And he says, believe in me. And we believe in him, that he died for our sins and he rose again. And we're saved by that faith alone in Jesus Christ. And then it says one baptism. And uh, there are Christians, as you talk about water water baptism, where some can say, well, you can be sprinkled and you can be dunked under the water. And it's okay for some Christians to disagree on that. But the truth here and what he points to is really this emphasis on the believer's union with Christ. So if you're a Christian, you have not been baptized, you need to be baptized. Write that down in the card, drop it in the thing, or talk to Pastor Sean or myself afterwards because we want to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And, but baptism does not save us, but we want to be obedient to him in that. But baptism shows the church and teaches us that we have union with Christ. But in verse 6, it says, One God... And Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. And I reflected on Deuteronomy chapter 6 this week, in which God says in verse 1, The Lord our God is one. We worship one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And God is sovereign. He's the one who spoke the universe into existence. He has had a plan, as we read in chapter 1, before he ever created the universe. And he's going to accomplish his plan for his people, and all of it's for his glory. And we are participants in that as he calls us to him. So let me ask you this, is this focus on walking in a worthy manner uh, with having those characteristics which, which describe the unity we have in Christ. How are you as a member or a participant of the body of Christ here at Discovery? How are you being zealous to maintain the unity of Christ here? What is it that God has called you to do and how to serve so that unity is something that continues to grow in this church? Because we see in verse 7 through 11, the second point is the church is given gifts. That Jesus Christ has given every believer a gift or gifts and it's for the unity of the body of Christ. And so to every single believer, every Christian, a gift of grace is given Verse 7, it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Nowhere in Scripture, in the New Testament specifically, do we find an exhaustive or a complete list of spiritual gifts. I want you to read, write down uh, these three area texts to go look at. Read Romans chapter 12 this week. And 1 Corinthians 12. So Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Just remember chapter 12, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. And then also read 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. You see, in those three chapters, we have lists of spiritual gifts. Some of them are mentioned in the three chapters. Some of them are not. So it points to us that we don't have this complete exhaustive list. But let me read to you a verse from each of those three which tells us and reminds us of what he says here in verse 7. Romans chapter 12, verse 6, it says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. We just read in verse 7 of Ephesians, By grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So again, you as a believer and I as a believer are not to be spectators sitting in the bleachers of the church. That if you have never heard this, you need to hear this. If you're a believer, you've been given a gift or gifts and you are a full time minister for Jesus Christ. And some of you think, no, pastor, we pay you to be full-time. We pay Pastor Sean to be full-time ministers. No, that goes contrary to Scripture. You, as a believer, are not a spectator. You're a participant in the body of Christ, and you are a full-time minister. You are to use the gifts that you have that I don't have that God's given you to minister to one another for His glory. I spoke to a person after the first service, and he came up to me and said, Hey, you know what? I don't have some of these other gifts, but I have the gift of encouragement. I said, Thank you. I need you. We need people with the gift of encouragement. We need gift, people with the gifts of service. We need people with the gift of evangelism. And at the same time, some of us go, Well, hey, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I don't have to go out and tell people Jesus Christ. No, wrong. 
Every one of us are commissioned to go out to tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ, but there are some who have the gift of evangelism. You can say Billy Graham, who reaches out to all kinds of people. They're the people that can't even sit still in the church service because they've got to go talk to someone outside about Jesus. The wonderful thing is God has uniquely gifted every believer in this room. I was talking to a pastor this week, and they were talking about some of the service projects that they do in their church. And one of the ones he described to me was just astounding. And he said, you know what? That idea came from a teenager in our church. A teenager gave you that idea? Yes. A teenager was using the gifts that God had given so that the church was impacting a whole bunch of people in East Missoula. And I'm going, praise God. So I'm like, if you're a student in this room and you're a believer, God's given you gifts that you should be using, yet most churches don't listen to the youth. And most churches don't give the youth a place to even share what God's putting on their hearts. I'm so thankful that we have adults who pour into the lives of our youth and lead them. So pray for our youth and pray for our children. Look at verse 8. Actually, before we look at verse 8, let me tell you this. Some of you may be saying, how do I know what my spiritual gifts are? Great question. One of the easiest ways is to just say, hey, how can I serve? Stop Pastor Sean or myself and say, we had this right after first service. Someone said, and I said, I will email you tomorrow a list of things. We have all kinds of ways that you can serve here among the body of Christ. And so just ask, say, how can I serve? Thank you. Let me give you a list of things. And God then begins to use things that you serve in. And maybe it's like, that's not the area that God's gifted you in, but you serve in another area. Like, wow, God has given me this gift to use in the church. And I'm so excited. And I have joy to do that. The other way is what we want to encourage you is some of you in this room have been to it. You need to sign up for either the one on May 19th or the one afterwards for our Purpose Finders class. We're not doing it just to gather a few people for a study. It's to help you to go, wow, here's some ways that I may be gifted in. Here's what God's Word has, and I need to test those things out. So here's how you do it. You go to our website, or you can write on the card today and sign up for it. And I've been told for six months, uh, we don't sign up here. People just don't sign up. That is an excuse. You make it to work on time. You make it to class on time. All right? There's things that you do. You pay your bills. So sign up for something. Let us know you're coming. Don't show up last minute. If you show up last minute, we'll still let you in. But hey, can we be a little responsible here? It's like, it's like even like showing up on time for the service and like people are like, whoa, don't step on my toes there, pastor. Do something. Start serving. Ask the Lord to reveal that to you. Verse 8 and 9, look at what it says here. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. And verse 10, he who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Ascended, descended, ascended, descended, all these things. Uh, you look at the text here, there's a quote from Psalm 68, verse 10, and the Apostle Paul uses it as an allegory to talk about what happens when kings triumph over their enemies. And when a king would triumph over their enemy, the plunder would be taken, and the king would give gifts to his soldiers, and he would take stuff to their home city and give gifts to people because they triumph over the enemy. And when I read this text, I see that God... Jesus came to earth, the incarnation, God, fully God, fully man. Jesus, God, became man with flesh. 
And he died on the cross for our sins. And he rose again, conquering Satan, sin, and death, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So when he ascended to heaven, it says that he gave gifts of grace to his people, which you as a believer have today. I remember reading this last week in John chapter 14 and uh, the, the 15 and 16 and 17 when he talks about the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, wait here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes upon you that the gifts of grace and these gifts given to us come by the power of the Holy Spirit. And verse 11 says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And I want to point out here something very important in verse 11 because we may find it easy to go, well, those are people in positions, their offices. But I would argue that he's not speaking of an office in the church here. And what I mean by that is if you go back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, he says the church is built on the foundation and he mentions the cornerstone. Who's the cornerstone of the church, our faith? Man, that was the best answer I have heard in six months when I asked you. That was awesome. It was like unison. Jesus, you got it. Jesus is the cornerstone. And it says we're also built upon, it said, two other people in Ephesians 1. Who were they? The Old Testament guys. Who were they? The prophets. And who is writing the New Testament? The apostles. And so the church is built on the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles who wrote about what Jesus did and what he taught. And the prophets who wrote about what Jesus would do when he came. And Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. And so when we read where Paul says here, he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Yes, there are positions in the church, but I believe he's speaking of some gifts here. Because of this fact. Turn to Ephesians, I mean, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. It's in the far right there of your Bible. Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, it backs up what we read in Ephesians chapter 1 about the cornerstone and the prophets and the apostles. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Who is that? Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited in more or is more excellent than theirs. Church, if anyone ever comes and says in this world, hey, we've got a new book of the Bible, or we've got this new revelation about Jesus, you need to understand that God has given us his final word in Jesus Christ alone. There is no more prophets to prophesy about Messiah coming. He's come. There are no more apostles to write the New Testament books of the Bible. We already have them. So that's why when I read this, I think of gifts of apostleship and prophecy and evangelism and pastoring or shepherding and teachers. The fact that Paul, the apostle, 
called Barnabas, James, and Apollos apostles, yet they were never named with those in the 12 who followed Jesus. Why would he call them apostles? You have the gift of prophecy. Again, you do not have a prophets of like the Old Testament day prophesying of what Jesus would come. But yet in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, there is the gift of prophecy. And let this be clear. Prophecy, the gift of prophecy, is for the purpose of edification and encouragement of the church. It's not speaking in some babble that you cannot understand that the even if there is this gift of tongues that God has given to people and the gift of interpretation that Paul talks about, it is orderly and not out of hand. And so the gift of prophecy is not someone speaking in some weird thing or, 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 or making this prayer language or what. It's prophesying God's word and an encouragement, edification for the church. There's a gift of evangelism. Acts 21, Philip had the gift of evangelism. And it also says in chapter 21, he had four daughters who had the gift of prophecy. This is after the Holy Spirit has come upon the people at Pentecost Shepherds or pastors that, yes, we have pastors or elders in our church. I was telling the elders the other week when we had our meeting that elders in Scripture are pastors. And pastors are elders. And they're held to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 5. Those are offices. But I know that there are people in the church, men and women, who have a heart of a pastor in the sense of ministering and caring for the spiritual nature of the church. We read the Apostle Paul talking about women that he that partnered with him in the gospel, uh, uh, working in the church. And then teachers. We need teachers. I pray that God would continue to give us people in the church with the gift of teaching, that they would, it would benefit the body of Christ to teach our children the, the word of God and the gospel, to teach our youth, to teach our adult classes, to teach small groups in homes. We, you know, we're praying. We'll talk about this more as we go uh, over the months to come. But this fall, I'm praying. We're praying as a staff and with leadership that God would open up the door and we'd have a number of homes in the fall that if you'd say hey I'll open my home and I'll have six seven people come over I won't lead it but we need people to lead times where people just study the word because the majority of our church never shows up any other day than Sunday because everyone's busy and we only have two rooms upstairs and they get used on one of the nights and we have things like that some of you go to some studies but the vast majority of our congregation isn't involved in anything other than Sunday morning It's not a guilt thing. It's not a shame thing. It's just a reality. So we need to go to your homes. We need to take the word of God to your homes. So maybe that's you and saying, Lord, maybe you've given me the gift of hospitality and I just need to open up my home for a number of weeks in the fall and the church is going to have someone come and lead and teach. Pray about those things. So unity is what we're to walk in. We see that in the gifts that are given. And in verses 12 through 16, the third point, the last one, is that the church is equipped to serve. And what we mean by that is the Apostle Paul points out that those gifts are given for you to use them to serve other people. It's not a thing to have a spiritual gift and to do nothing with it and sit in the bleachers. You're actually to use it to serve one another. And he first points, there's no talk in, that, in this passage about serving people outside Now, we need to serve people outside. We need to be a light to the world. In the months to come, we're going to give you opportunities, and we want the body of Christ to go out in Missoula and go serve people. 
but he addresses the problem with believers not serving one another in the body of Christ. Because the purpose of serving one another in the body of Christ is for the growth of spirit, that we'd be spiritually mature. Yes, the Holy Spirit works in our life. God does a work. Jesus is sanctifying us. But he will use his people and your gifts to encourage one another and support one another and walk alongside one another so that the church is built up into spiritual maturity. Look at verse 12 here. Those gifts are all given to equip saints for the work of ministry or for service, for building up of the body of Christ. The purpose of the gifts is for the building up of the body of Christ, that this church, Discovery Church, would grow spiritually mature. And it says to equip this, uh, uh, and this work of ministry, it's, it's, it's almost this picture when it, uh, to complete something and what we see in 1 Peter chapter 2 where it speaks of the church and each believer is a living stone built on the cornerstone of Jesus. So every believer is a living stone, the part of the body of Christ, the part of the temple of God, and we are to use those gifts so that we are built up in that. Mark chapter 10 verse 45, Jesus tells us, What he did and what we are to do, he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Is Discovery Church marked by people who serve one another? Is Discovery Church marked by the unity we have in Christ because we use the gifts for the benefit of other people? Do we think of others more highly than ourselves? Are we willing to serve wherever there is a need? Because in verse 13, it says how long we're to do this. It says until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There are other places in the New Testament where you see the Apostle Paul write the church and he's concerned because he said, hey, you guys are still drinking this spiritual bottle, um, these things that you learn, basic things, the truths of God, and you should be here chewing on the meat of God's word and chewing on this, you should be maturing in this. And so he says, we do this until we attain, attain unity of the faith. We are to serve one another until the day Christ comes in the clouds. We are to serve one another until the day that we're with Jesus in glory so that the church would grow. And the result of being an active participant, using your gifts in the body instead of being a spectator, waiting for someone to serve you as the church grows. Look at verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. When we gather on Sundays, this is like being in the locker room before going out in the game. Read Ephesians chapter 6. The enemy is real. Satan and the demons are waiting to attack us all the time. And we come in for a, you know, if you've ever done sports or seen it in a movie or show, you know, the coach gets up and he's like, man, we got to go get them. We're going to go do this, whatever. And everyone gets all fired up and they go running out on the field. It's kind of like that. We're kind of in the locker room together when we gather at different times of the week and we go out there. 
But the game is played in the sense every single day as we take those steps and walk in unity. The enemy is waiting to trick and deceive you and to cause us to believe false things like you're such a sinful hypocrite. You're not a son, a a child of God. Uh, Does God really love you? Look at what you did. And what the enemy does is lie to us. And we're like, oh, man, I feel so bad. And we come back. We don't do anything during the week. We don't serve anyone else. There's no unity. And we just come back like, oh, I need to get fired up again. And we go through that over and over. That's a picture of immaturity in the body of Christ. It says that we need to be growing and that growth comes from partnering with one another and using our gifts for one another. And I was praying about this between the service. I I had mentioned this in the first service and, and, and was encouraged, hey, think about whether to say this or not. I was praying, you know, um, because I have spoken to some in the body of Christ, I, I think I need to mention a few things here that the enemy, again, is waiting to deceive us. And this world sets before us false things. And it's sad when you are a part of a church and you see a Sunday school class or a small group and what they've done is they've started with a book that a man or a woman has written or a famous movie and to take a study from it. And what happens is you wonder why there's not unity and why there's trouble because they're believing lies and they're believing false things and we need to go to God's word. Simple, right? He's given us his word. We study it. So I would caution you, the people you're watching on TV, maybe you need to stop reading their books. The movies that so-called sometimes the Christian world puts out with a study guide, which have things that are not correct with Scripture, don't start there. Go to God's word where the meat is. Encourage one another and spend time together and be encouraged in it. That's that part of rather speaking the truth in love. Verse 16, we close with this. It says, from whom the whole body... Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The church is all about Jesus. Jesus is our Savior who purchased us and redeemed us with his blood at the cross. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He is the one who is raised from from death to life. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And his plan is for his body, the people, the church. And he is the head and we are the body. And he wants us to grow in him who is the head. And so unity is huge. I pray this morning that you get this. We don't go to church. We are the church. We do not go to church, but we are the church. If you're a spectator here this morning and you're like, man, I just been going to church. Maybe God's calling you to take a step in maturity if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian and you've just been a spectator in Christianity, God's saying, hey, today's the day of salvation. Believe in me. The worship team is coming forward and Pastor Sean and those who are coming forward to serve communion are going to come up front right now. And as they do that, I want to read to you one more passage of scripture. Even before I started, six months ago, when I was going through the interview process, there was a word that was used in in, in conjunction with the city 
and this church, and I'm so sick of it. It's the word apathy. People say, oh, people in Missoula are so apathetic. People in Discovery Church, we have a bunch of apathetic believers. And I don't believe that because I've seen enough of you who are serving and get involved and using your gifts, so I don't really believe that. Yes, do we have some apathetic people spiritually? I'm sure we do. And yes, is there some apathy in this city? Yes, there is, but I'm so sick of that. Can we stop talking about it and just begin to do the work God's called us to do? Because here's what happens to people who are apathetic spiritually. Jesus says this in Revelation chapter 3 about the church of Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And you go, wow, wait, that's Jesus? Yeah, our Savior, our Lord. He loves us. But he has no problem disciplining his people and calling his people to not be lukewarm spectators in the crowd of the church, but to be people who are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit by walking in a manner worthy of the calling, living out those characteristics of Jesus Christ, using the gifts that God has given you so that the church is built up and matures in Christ and all for the glory of God. He gets all the glory. Amen?